My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Duke is a World Series of Poker champion, having won more than $4 million in tournament poker. In 2004, she won the World Series of Poker bracelet and is the only woman to have won the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions. In 2009, Annie was a contestant on The Celebrity Apprentice, where she took second and raised more than $700,000 for her chosen charity. She is the author of Thinking in Bets, a national bestseller, and Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, and she recently completed her PhD. She is also the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. I hope you enjoy learning from Annie Duke today, because I always do. Annie, it's so great to connect today. For the last 10 years, I spent a lot of time in the decision-making research, which has repeatedly led me to you and your work. However, when I told my wife that I was having you on the podcast, she started talking about you like she knew you better than I expected because my wife is not deep in the decision-making research. <laughs> and then she reminded me, she's like, Nate, she was our favorite contestant on The Apprentice back in 2009. Oh. And it was so- I wasn't expecting that. Okay. <laughs> well, I wasn't either. It was so funny because for the last however many years, 10 years, you have been you know, the person I look to for great insights on decision-making. And I totally forgot that I had this mental connection with you as this contestant who just performed amazingly well and was so creative and insightful and talented. So anyway, it's great to chat with you today. Well, it's great to chat with you too. So Annie, as you think back on your incredible career, are there two or three lessons you've learned that you would most like to pass on to others? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, look, it, it depends on like how far back do I want the lesson to go. But but I, I think that if I really reach back and I think about something that I'd really like people to understand, it's that, I mean, not surprisingly, given the subject of my last book, which was quitting, it's really this idea that that quitting isn't a bad thing. That I think nowadays, and I know I even felt this when I was heading off to college, we get this sense that we have to know as we launch into adulthood what we're going to do as an adult, what we're going to be. And once we sort of start down that path that we're really guessing at, right, because it's probabilistic, we we don't have that much information about who we're going to be as we grow up. We we think we're going to we know a lot about who we're going to be in the years to come, but we actually don't know that much about ourselves our future selves. Uh, and, and once we get started down a path, like we declare that I'm pre-med or we declare that I, you know, I'm going to college, but I want to go to law school. Or in my case, I'm going to uh, be a psychologist. Um, it's very hard for us to pivot away because it becomes a part of our identity. So we have kind of this twofold problem that we're trying to forecast who our future self is going to be. And we're making these guesses and, and we're, declaring and we're sort of starting down a path that is really probabilistic it's really you know it's not a hundred percent and then once we start down that path it's very hard for us to leave it without feeling like we failed 
And I wish that I knew that I should have been doing lots and lots more sampling. Just try a bunch of stuff, figure out what you like. Once you like it, you should still be trying other stuff because it's okay to go pivot away from that. And I feel like for me, I really figured that lesson out when I was forced to pivot. I was forced to stop what I was doing. So I did five years worth of graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, getting my PhD in cognitive science. As I was on the job market, I got really sick. And so I was forced to stop what I was doing. And when I was forced to stop it, that was when I discovered poker which ended up being something that I really loved and was very good at. I, I ended up being a world champion. And then about eight years into that, I started merging cognitive science and poker and giving talks to, to people in finance and uh, business. Uh, and then in 2012, I stopped poker, started a foundation called the Alliance for Decision-Making, uh, uh, Decision Education rather, started writing books, ended up back at Penn, finished my PhD. <laughs> so once I once I had that moment where I was forced to, to leave, I discovered that it wasn't so bad. But I wish that people would understand that don't wait until you're forced to, that you should be exploring much more because that was that was the lesson that I learned. And I ended up uh, maybe like one of those people who's like, oh, shiny objects. But the thing is that a lot of those shiny objects end up being like really cool and really fulfilling. And I, I think that people should be much exploring a lot more than they do and not being afraid to say the thing that I'm doing, either I don't love or I loved it, but I no longer do, or I love it, but I think there might be this other thing that I love more. Yeah, so great. And just lots of thoughts. I'll try and be brief. Uh, Bob Sutton, who I interviewed recently, professor at Stanford, he says, first of all, not everything we're doing is is worth doing well. Right. <laughs> and That's right. we don't have to just reach the pinnacle of whatever we've decided. Uh, I was listening to a psychologist recently, and they said, you have to be really careful about doing those things that you're exceptionally good at, but that don't bring you happiness or fulfillment because you can get trapped. And I love the way you started this is, this is a probabilistic environment and we feel like, and that's, you know, we were talking about Don Moore before we got on. And, and when yeah. Don came on the podcast, that was his number one lesson was, was think probabilistically. And we feel like, well, if, if, if we've set a goal for a, we have to achieve a, and if we don't achieve a, we're a failure. But if we're thinking probabilistically, it's like, no, I, I think I'm going to pursue a, and I really like a, but thinking probabilistically allows us, to more easily transition and, and find something that's more exciting. And, and then the last thing that I was thinking about is uh, Nassim Taleb, uh, author of The Black Swan, he, he talks so much about the value of tinkering. And yep. the reason our economy thrives and we've created one of the greatest economies in the history of the world is because people are allowed to tinker. Nobody knows the future, but the yep. more you can encourage and motivate people to tinker, the more likely we are to have major breakthroughs. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it's the problem with central planning, right? Yeah. Is uh, uh, you put a stake in the ground and you're putting all your eggs into baskets where you're trying to project out many, many years. And it's not just that uh, luck can intervene. So like in my case, right, I got sick. So luck was intervening. But it's also this issue of, of when you're trying to make these forecasts about what you think is going to be worthwhile going forward. 
uh, you're making under it under conditions where you have very little information. Yeah. And it's not just information that you might discover about the world. It's also information that you might discover about yourself. And I think that's such an important lesson is that we think we know what our preferences are. We think we know what we're going to value. We think we know what we're what is going to bring us happiness. But just as much as we need to tinker about like products that we might be developing or research lines that we might want to pursue or business strategies, we also have to tinker about ourselves. We have to experiment to see what are the things that we like and dislike. So when we make a guess, right, when we say, I think for right now, given what I know about myself and about the world, this is the best thing for me to pursue. We need to be open-minded to the fact that in pursuing that, we may discover things about ourselves. And one of the things we might discover is, this isn't actually the thing I want to do. And that's totally okay. It doesn't mean you made a mistake because it was probabilistic in the first place. Yeah, such a great insight. And this hits home with me. I started law school at age 32. I started my PhD at age 35. I started my postdoc, you know, on and on. So I didn't get my first tenure track job until I'm like 40. But I just felt like I kept finding better stuff for me. Exactly. And as we experiment, we we get more information. Well, such a great lesson. Any any other lesson you'd like to share before we wrap up? So this is a lesson that's really been on my mind lately. Um, I think that people talk a lot about how in in the information ecosphere that we live in, people are trying to fool you, right? So they talk a lot about misinformation, disinformation, people lying. Um, And the thing that actually concerns me much more is that most of the fooling is us fooling ourselves in the sense that I think that there's so much information out there that would totally survive a fact check, but we don't know how to model that information. We don't know how to figure out like what's true and what's not true. So I'll give you a couple of examples because I think it's so important for people to understand that just because something survives a fact check doesn't mean that it's true, true in the sense of the truth, right? Like the right model of those facts. So let me just give you two examples to try to explain what I mean, because it's been something that's been actually really concerning to me recently. Um, Here's one. Uh, Back about a year ago, I think, uh, the stock market dropped 3,000 points in one day. So if you go and you fact check that, yes, the stock market dropped 3,000 points in one day. But what people were saying was it was the largest stock market drop in the history of the market. And that's not true because you have to think about what the total stock market is, right? So you have to ask out of out of how many. And once you ask out of how many, Black Monday, that 500-point drop in the 80s actually turns out to be by far uh, the largest drop because the stock market at that time was, I think, I'm not even sure if it was 2,000, whereas the 3,000-point drop was occurring when the stock market was like 33,000. Yeah, in terms of percentage, much less. Much less. So like, there's a good question that you need to ask yourself is out of how many? Uh, Here's another example. Uh, So a lot of people were touting this statistic that came out that in August of 2022, the majority, 58% of the people who died from COVID were vaccinated. So if you go and you you look that up, it'll totally survive a fact check, right? That, That is a true, that's true in the sense of it's factual. Mm -hmm. But the problem is how do you model that? And what I saw a lot of people taking from that is, uh, oh, look, vaccines aren't effective. Uh, You know, that 
we told you so, whatever, or, or people who thought vaccines were effective are now looking at that and saying, are vaccines effective? But again, you have to ask so many more questions. You have to say, well, what percentage of the population is vaccinated? Because we can think about a situation like where 99% of the population is vaccinated. Then if 58% of the deaths are coming from vaccinated people, it sounds like they're pretty good. And in fact, and it wasn't in any of the articles, 80% of the population was vaccinated at that time. So already it sounds better. But then you also have to say, well, who's getting vaccinated? Older people tend to be getting vaccinated. So we should really be matching vaccinated people to unvaccinated people and see what that ratio now looks like. Because uh, young people are less likely to get vaccinated, but also less likely to die. Uh, and it turns out that once you match for age, once you adjust for age, vaccines were five times more effective at preventing death uh, compared to unvaccinated populations. So this is a good example of like, I read that statistic in the Washington Post, like they're trying to tell you the truth. I don't, they're not lying to you. But if you don't have the tools to be thinking about like, okay, but what does that number actually mean? What does that fact actually mean? You're going to end up fooling yourself a lot. And I think that we need to become much more literate about understanding like some simple questions. Like, and I would just tell people the two big things that I want you to ask whenever you hear a fact is out of how many, it's one of the most important things out of how many and in comparison to what. And I feel like if people would just take those two piece, those two things out of how many and in comparison to what, people would be so much better in terms of their information literacy, in terms of really understanding what do these, when we get these numbers and these facts thrown at us, like what does it mean? Out of how many and in comparison to what? I am so glad you came up with those two questions. I was just thinking the other day, uh, I was listening to, reading something controversial and uh, there were two different sides. And I started thinking like, anytime... I hear one side of a story and I'm going to report it. I want to always say, here's the most generous interpretation of the facts from the other person's point of view, because I right. feel like I've just been so wrong so many times where you hear something and you get, you know, so convinced that you're right. Or, you know, we become overconfident in, in the accuracy of our knowledge. And so that was just like a little trick that I was just thinking about just the, in the last couple of days, like what is the most generous interpretation possible for the other side? And so I love when you're talking numbers and facts that we're reading online, um, yeah. out of how many and in comparison to what, such a great yeah. technique. And by the way, it's not just like things that you're going to see in the media. Let's say that you're an investor and you're you're investing in companies which means that you're investing in, in people. And you say, I used to think that if a founder was 40 or over, that I shouldn't invest in them. I used to think that. But then I looked at our most successful companies and I realized that a very high percentage of them were 40 and over. So maybe uh, that is something I should be wanting to only invest in people who are 40 and over. So it turned out that actually 50% uh, of the successful founders that I invested in were, were over 40. So that seems like a very reasonable conclusion to draw. But then you also have to ask, but wait a minute, what about the unsuccessful founders? Yeah. Right? Because it could turn out that like 80% of the unsuccessful founders were over 40 and that age actually isn't a particularly good signal. 
But the problem is that when we only look at one thing, which is like, well, what are the features of the successful founders? We may not see that they are uh, the same features of the unsuccessful founders. Here would be another example. I used to think if the, if you were a college dropout, that was bad in terms of being a founder. So I looked at, uh, I was looking at our most successful founders and I figured out that like 70% of them are college dropouts. So now I feel like I should specifically be looking for college dropouts to invest in. But the problem is that maybe 70% of unsuccessful founders are also college dropouts. And it just turns out that the people who are attracted to being founders are more likely to be college dropouts. And it's not that you should specifically be trying to invest in college dropouts because 70% of the successful ones are college dropouts and 70% of the unsuccessful ones are college dropouts. And this is a problem that happens all the time when you're generating your own data. So this reminds me a little bit of like counterfactual thinking, disentangling yeah. correlation from causation, but it's a it's a more specific case. And I wonder if there's like a specific name for this. I have I have a name for it, which is the untreated group. It's applying the scientific method to the way that you think about the world. So this particular problem actually came up for me. So this particular example came up, not not about college dropouts, but there was a particular feature um, of founders that uh, somebody had pegged on in terms of the successful founders. Okay, so in, in this case, you can think of uh, successful as like the treated group, right? You're mapping it onto the idea of a treatment group and a control group, right? So uh, in this case, you're saying successful, right? So you're trying to take that group of people and you're saying, okay, what's the feature, right? What, what are we looking at in terms of college dropout, right? And it turns out, oh, I thought being a college dropout was bad, but actually 70% of our successful founders are, are college dropouts. So therefore, so now, now you're taking it to the causation. Hmm. Being a college dropout causes you to be more likely to, to be successful. So you're trying to draw that conclusion. Uh, which is a natural conclusion to draw. It's an excite. This is the problem. It's an exciting thing to discover. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's a lot of our successful founders are college dropouts. This is so exciting. So now we're going to invest in college dropouts because you're, again, as you just said, you're thinking about that causally. So what a scientist would do, the scientific method would be to say, well, uh, we'd like to sort of run an experiment. And, you know, ideally you would have, assign people to finish college or not, but we can't really do that. So we can do it a natural experiment. So we can say, is there a natural control group? And the natural control group in this case would be unsuccessful founders. Yeah. So that's the extra step that you don't go unless you're sort of really thinking scientific method. So unsuccessful founders becomes basically the natural control group. You go look at that group and you say, what percentage of them are college dropouts? And if 5% of them were college dropouts. You'd go, this is amazing. We should be really looking at college dropouts. There must be some feature of them that makes them really successful. But if 70% of them are college dropouts, the same percentage as are successful, you would say, that's just the feature of founders, like people who are attracted to yeah. founding companies or college dropouts, and it's not actually causal or a signal for success. So we shouldn't actually be looking at it. You know, in academia, this specific problem that you're describing is one of the hardest to deal with is the file drawer problem. We run all these studies that don't work out, right? And then they don't get published and we never know about them. And we're only learning about the things from the treatment condition where something worked. Right. And I love your approach of how can I model this? 
So anytime we get information, like how can I use this data to inform my decisions? And hopefully with that extra bit of cognition, plus your two questions, that will motivate us and give us a guideline for how do we think more deeply about this and how can we use this to actually make better decisions? It's like, literally, if I could just get everybody on earth to say out of how many and in comparison to what, I would be so happy, <laughs> right? Because if you think about like in comparison to what and out of how many, that's the answer to the data problem of yeah. college dropouts and founders, yeah. right? Well, what percentage of successful founders, so that's out of how many, are are um, college dropouts, but then in comparison to what, right? What do we want to compare that to? Well, we want to compare that to unsuccessful founders and ask the same thing. And then boom, that, that it's so much easier to understand what that means. And then you're not all of a sudden making a mistake that's causing you to change the way that you're uh, forecasting. So here's here's the big news, right? Every decision that you make is a forecast. So if you go back to like what you said, Don Moore said immediately, think probabilistically. That's really what that means. Every decision you make is a forecast, a forecast of of which option should I choose? Which option has uh, associated with it, in my opinion, the most gains, right? But that's probabilistic, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, the quality of that forecast that you're making, right? In the simplest sense, I should go, I should take route A to work or route B to work, right? That's a forecast of mm -hmm. what's gonna get you there the fastest. The quality of that forecast that you're making is only as good as the way that you've modeled the information that's being inputted into that forecast. So if you've if you've modeled this piece of information that you've gotten, 70% of successful founders are college dropouts, if you model that in a way that that's causal, you think that that's causal, then as you're trying to decide who to invest in going forward, your, your forecast is just going to be yeah, messed biased. up. Yeah. It's going to be wrong. Because, because the way that you modeled that fact is wrong. And again, this is the thing that concerns me the most is that that would survive a fact check, right? It's a fact that you produced. It's true. But you model it wrong, and that makes your decisions going forward wrong. So that that's the thing. And these things can be life and death. Like, should you get vaccinated? Should you get, uh, you know, what type of treatment should you choose if it turns out that you have cancer? Right. I mean, these, these are really, really big decisions and not just things like, you know, what should my business strategy be? Right. But if you're going to understand, for example, like what are my treatment options for a particular disease that I have, you better understand out of how many in comparison to what you better know those two questions or you're not going to be able to navigate those decisions very well. So I was just listening to a podcast with Peter Tia. Actually, it's in Peter Tia's book. You may be familiar with Peter Tia. Um, and he was talking about how all of the gains in life expectancy have basically been because of, what's the word I'm thinking of? Sorry. Antibiotics and uh, no open sewers. Yes. So just like overall cleanliness and antibiotics. And so we think we've made a lot of gains in cancer, but it's if you ask the question, well, you know, in comparison to what, right? Or out of how many? Then we realize, oh, we've really not made hardly any progress in cancer. Now, of course, every time you save a single person from some new treatment, that matters a lot to that person. But when we're talking big picture, 
we really haven't done much. And so I, I think that's an example of people think like we made a lot of progress on cancer, but really, and heart disease, we haven't when you compare it to, you know, how, how much gains we've made in other areas. Right. Like, in, right. So in comparison to what, like, where are you getting the biggest gains? It's like uh, another thing from Peter Attia is exercise. Yeah. Right. Like when you compare uh, smoking versus not smoking in life expectancy, it's nothing compared to exercise versus not exercise. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm telling people to go out and smoke. It just means that it's dwarfed. Yeah. It, what's the single most important thing that you could do to increase your life expectancy? Exercise. And it made me th another. We're going to have a little bit of a tangent. And we'll wrap up. But uh, he asked the question, you know, who's more likely to die in the next 10 years? The healthiest 75-year-old on planet Earth or the 30-year-old who smokes pack a day and has diabetes? And is completely sedentary. And the 70-year-old is more likely to die. And part of it is because, well, compared to what? Like, how yeah. unhealthy is the 30-year-old? Well, compared to what? Right. Because, yeah, they're pretty unhealthy. But compared to the 75-year-old, age is the number one predictor. And age is the thing that really matters. So I, I just think when I went to law school, I just started to fall in love with logic. Um, but it's just so hard to teach people formal logic. And it's hard to get people excited about it. And so I love what you've done here is you've created two simple questions. It might be a little harder to get people to, you know, focus on the untreated group um, or the file drawer problem, but to help to give people two simple questions that address that underlying issue is just fantastic. So I uh, just want to thank you so much, Annie. This has been fun for me. Um, just a long time coming. And I'm so grateful that you would uh, share such great insights with me and, and, engage and just uh, I look forward to seeing what you work on next oh well thank you uh I I think I think I'm I think I'm gonna start another book in the fall but it's probabilistic well you, you've got uh certainly a, a reader here so well thank you very it. much this is really fun thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes what great lessons for Manny first quitting isn't a bad thing all decisions are probabilistic, so it's important to continually sample. Try a bunch of stuff, figure out what you like, and then keep trying a bunch of stuff. It's hard for us to leave paths without feeling like we failed. Luckily for Annie, she was forced to try other things when she got sick during her PhD program, and then sampling poker helped her realize that she loved it and she was really good at it, eventually becoming a world champion. Then she realized she liked writing books, giving talks, and running a foundation. As Annie said, with whatever we're doing, don't be afraid to say, I don't love it, or I loved it, but I no longer do. Or, I still love it, but I think there might be this other thing that I love more. Second, just because something survives a fact check doesn't mean it's true. True in the sense that it's the right model of the facts. Given that every decision we make is a forecast, the quality of our decisions are only as good as the way that we've modeled the information that is inputted into the forecast. And Annie has developed two questions that are fantastic for modeling facts. Out of how many, and in comparison to what. By asking ourselves these two questions, we will improve our models and make Annie happy. In summary, don't be afraid to quit and ask yourself out of how many and in comparison to what. All simple ideas, please take them seriously. Nate Mickle here with two final things. If you're like me and want to remember all of the lessons shared in previous episodes, visit the list of lessons page on my website, natemickle.com, to see all of the lessons that each previous guest has shared. 
And second, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Thanks for your support.